Well, on Friday, I made good on a commitment that I promised to myself at the age of 13. Um, when I was 13 years old, I said, when I turn 40, which happens on Tuesday, I will go skydiving. And I don't know if I told my wife that this is what I'm doing um, until uh, two months ago. And she's like, what? No. Um, but we got around to it. And so uh, on Friday, two days ago, this is what I did. I think we have a clip from here um, of me plummeting to the earth, uh, going over 125, 150 miles per hour. Um, some of y'all asked, did I enjoy it? It doesn't look like I did, <laughs> based on the video. Uh, that was, uh, it was pretty intense. Um, I, I feel like the face that I had there had a lot of uh, Woody from Toy Story vibes to it. Um, <laughs> there were some similarities, and I, there was something going on with my neck while I was just flailing at the wind. Uh, it, <laughs> it was by far the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. And most likely, the scariest thing I will ever do in my life, because some of y'all have asked, would you do it again? And I said, maybe at another 40 years. Um, you know, if that, if that point that I'm still feeling it at the age of 80, then maybe I will do that again. Um, however, I could see how if you are an adrenaline addict, something like that would be enticing. Uh, because <laughs> by the time you reach the ground, like, my heart was pumping, and I just don't, like, I'm like, I'm not sure how I didn't have a heart attack. Um, and I got to the ground. I didn't kiss the ground like I thought I might at the time, but I was like, I love this land. I love it so much. Oh, I'm so happy to be alive. And I gave him a family hug. Like, I'm just so happy to be on the ground. It was so bad. But, but also, it, it invigorated me, and I'm thankful that I'm alive. Uh, I'm thankful to be alive. Uh, Malcolm is too. Uh, <laughs> but um, what I realized, though, is I could see how an adrenaline addict would want that. Because if, if most of your life is rather mundane and you just feel like you're just going through the motions, um, a high like that will wake you up and, and, and excites you for life. And I could see how you would want to go and chase that high um, all the time. Um, but... If I were to ask you, how would you describe 2023 to me, I would venture to guess that half of you would say something negative, only because just like if someone gave you a compliment, but someone earlier in the day gave you an insult, all you think about is that insult, yes? That's typically what happens. And so if anything negative happened in 2023, that's typically all we think about. However, some of y'all have very good reasons to say, no, 2023 has been the worst. Um, and, you know, we're 10 months into it, so this is probably a good way to say <laughs> this is a good indicator of how the year is going to go, um, <laughs> right? Uh, and so <laughs> that might be you. Now, half of y'all might be saying that, that it, it's, been, it's been hard. But then you might expect then the other half to say, it's been great, it's been beautiful. It's been wonderful. But that's not how we do things in life. The other half doesn't just embrace how joyful it has been. The other half will then go, if I were to ask you, how was your day? How was your weekend? How was your whatever? A typical response is more like this emoji, uh, the, the meh emoji, right? 
That is typically how it goes. Like, how was your, how was your day at work? Meh. Meh. Um, how, was, how was your weekend? Meh. How was 2023 to you? Like, I think that's how most people answer the question. If we don't have something seriously painful that we can attribute to, it's been hard. We don't go immediately then to, it's been great. We just go, it's been, eh, it's okay. And I just want to ask, where is the joy? Like, what are we missing as Christians that we can't describe things with that same amount of joy that we might expect we should describe it as? And so the title of my sermon today is, I Bring the Jubilee. Um, And this is uh, looking at Isaiah 61, 62. And so the way we're going to look at this, we're going to look at the three ways. We're going to look at joy, jubilee, and Jesus. That's right. Bears, beats, Battlestar, Galactica. Uh, Joy, jubilee, and Jesus. So joy. Now, after reading that passage, you might wonder, why are we talking about joy? Um, it, It doesn't seem as clear at first. However, if you were to go back and look through chapter 61 and 62, it is just drenched in joy. Um, So just a couple verses to put up on the screen here. Verse 3 talks about the oil of joy. Verse 7, a call to rejoice and references an an everlasting joy. Verse 10 talks about a joyful soul. And so this passage is just dripping with joy if we were able to see it. And one of the things that is clear from this passage is that our joy has teeth, that our our joy is tangible. It's not just fake, I want to be happy joy. There is is real, there is something solid to, to build upon with that joy. Now, I get it. In the church, we've been very clear um, over the years. There's a difference between happiness and joy, right? And so we want to say very clearly, Joy is not just a happiness based on your circumstances. It's not just that. It's not just skydiving all the time, right? Like, we're not just saying, like, that's not joy. That, that's an overwhelming emotion of happiness, right? Okay, yes. So it's not that. However, I feel like many times we just stop there as a church, um, as a broader collection of, of, of Christians, that we just say that's all it is, is it's not that. But we don't actually say what it might actually be. We don't give a positive vision for what it actually is. And so it's not a happy feeling, yes, but also it's not just a choice where you just choose joy and you're going, you know, life is tough, but I'm choosing joy. And that might work for a bit, but I think you have to have something to root that joy in for it to last long. And so what I want us to see is that our joy has to have a, it's a shift of our point of view. Joy isn't a choice. Joy is it's a focus. It's what is our focus on. And so that, I think many times we want to say it's not just a choice and we go, okay, let's just bite our tongue. Let's just endure whatever we're going through. Let's fake it till we make it. And I want to say, no, joy isn't just a choice where you just fake it till you make it. It's, it's a shift of our focus because you can take the same image and if you shift what's in focus versus what's out of focus, it can change your whole view of what's going on there. So the, the, this first image, you have, you have right now, you have the, the, the leaf and, and the, the sapling, I don't know what that is, the, the branch thing that's coming from it in, in, in pure focus. That's, your, that's one picture. The same image, but now your focus is on what's behind it, and it's the lake behind it. 
And what's wild and fascinating is you can have the same picture, but if you shift your focus, it, it, it changes what you are now placing your mind on. And what I think joy is supposed to be doing is shifting our focus. It's a way of looking at things and looking for something beautiful amidst the ugly. I think one of the worst ways that we can get joy is just say, focus on joy. Just make, work on making yourself a more joyful person. You need to cheer up, right? Like, I think that doesn't work if you just tell someone to cheer up. Um, like, be more joyful. Okay, all right, I'm just going to be a happier person. 2023, I got two months left to just make this a happy year. I'm going to be a more fun person from now on. I've been kind of miserable, but now I'll be fun. Like, I don't think that works. That doesn't seem to work. I don't think that's ever worked. I think joy is looking past our joy, past the circumstances, but it's looking to the one who can actually give us joy. It's looking to the one who's actually created joy. And so I want us to give some, some roots, a foundation for this joy. And let's look at this passage here. Look at Isaiah 61. You can look at verse 1 as it kicks off. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Oh, do do you see how tangible this joy is? It's rooted in some real life things. It's it's proclaiming good news to the poor. What, What would the poor need to hear? that they're out of debt. That would be good news to them, to get them out of debt. What would a homeless, someone who's experiencing homelessness need to hear is at the very least that you can have a home, you can have a place to stay and to live. It is very tangible. I mean, it says to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness from the prisoners. Like, do we see how political this passage is? When we think politics and we think, oh, it's bad. Okay, we're not talking about partisanship. We're talking about politics. And here it's dealing with social issues. It's caring for people in these group ways. It's liberating them. And so if you're saying that sounds political, well, it kind of is. But who who is this suffering servant ministering to? Look at verse 2 here. Who is it for? To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. And so who is this for? It's for those who are grieving, those who are mourning. And it talks about those who want a crown of beauty instead of ashes. In that day, when you went to a funeral, you covered your head in ashes now, some of us might think if you go up, grow up in a certain faith tradition, um, at, at Lent, you have the little ash cross on your forehead. That's a picture of it. But in that day, it wasn't just a small little cross. It was covering your head in ashes. And so as you went to the funeral, you were saying, my life is like this. I feel burnt. I feel dead. And you went into a season of mourning. We don't mourn well in our churches. 
Mourning is a part of it. There's a season for it. There's a time for laughter, but there's a time for mourning, and we mourn as we go to this. And so he's saying, for someone who is going to mourn, I'm going to give you a crown of joy. And so what is happening here, instead of having your head covered in ashes, you're going to have a crown of joy, an oil of of joy and gladness. What's happening here is it's kind of this image Whereas if a woman uh, is going to a funeral and she's dressed, decked out in, in her black dress, going to a funeral, and on her way there, someone stops her and says, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry, you got the wrong invitation. You are not going to a funeral. In fact, you're going to a wedding and you are the person getting married. It's that great of a reversal. Now, how would you react if that happened? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> right? But if it was real, if you went from, from sheer, like, I'm going to cry my eyes out because the person I love is gone, to now not only are they not gone, they're alive, but now we're getting married, like, you might start crying out of, out of just joy. And you might start laughing uncontrollably, like, this is, this is too good to be true. That is what Isaiah is talking about. It's that great of a reversal of what's happening here. There is a shift that is happening here. And so our joy has teeth that in spite of the pain, there is something far greater coming. Our focus looks past the ugly to something greater. That's what our joy is supposed to be doing. It's looking past it to something greater. That's that's real. It's not just pie in the sky. It's real. And so our Messiah didn't come to just bring that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart, right? Like, that's not why our Messiah came. It may be part of that. But our our Messiah did not come just to, to, to die and save our souls, but he was resurrected to save our bodies as well. Like, God cares about then and now. God cares about our bodies and to actually move us to something beautiful. And that's when we come to this second point, and that's the point of jubilee. Now, um, tucked between these passages uh, in verses 1 and 2 is this verse that he says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if You're like me for a long time. You don't hear the word jubilee in that passage. It's because it's not. However, that phrase, the year of of the Lord's favor, is quoted directly from Leviticus 25. And in Leviticus 25, it is describing the year of jubilee. Do we know what the year of jubilee is? Some of us have gone through that. Some of us named our child's middle name after it. Um... What is the year of Jubilee? The year of Jubilee is, is, is you, you guys have heard of the Sabbath, hopefully. Um, the Sabbath is what we get to celebrate today, right? It's one day in seven that we rest. Many of us have a hard time just doing that, right? Having one day of rest. Now, in Jewish, and for the Israel, Israelites, not only are they commanded to have one day in, in seven to rest, they are to have one year in seven years to rest. A whole year of rest. Wouldn't that just be delightful? 
Like, what are you doing this year? <laughs> I'm resting. <laughs> this is a great year of rest. But not only is it a year of rest where you didn't actually work the ground and, and get the, the food from the ground, it is, it is a year where if you buy, let's say, because it's a very agricultural community, if you had poor crops that year for a couple years, and uh, maybe you had some really unwise business practices, what, what might happen in those times is that whenever you got into debt, you then would have to hire yourself out and become an indentured servant to other farmers. Now, after seven years of being in this system where you are trying to earn back or pay back that debt, and who knows if that debt will ever get paid, after seven years, it all gets washed clean and the debt goes away. Now, we here love to have our 30-year fixed mortgages. Wouldn't it be great to just have it every seven years, like, done? Ooh, that would be wonderful. That'd be delightful, right? Yes. Sadly, not where we're at. <laughs> but so every seven years, the debt is now wiped clean, and that's what's happening then. The year of Jubilee is on top of that. So you had one day and seven to rest, then you had one year and seven years to have all the debt wiped clean in a year of rest, and now the year of Jubilee is a Sabbath Sabbaths. It is a every 49 years, so every seven, 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 all the way up, every 49 years, and at the 50th year, the trump of Jubilee would sound, and everyone would, would enjoy the same things you just did with the, 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 the cessation of work. You would rest for a whole year. Debts would be canceled. But now, not only is the land going to lie fallow for a whole year so it can replenish itself, but even further, what's even more radical is if your debt built over time and you got removed from your land and that land was given to other people and sold to other people, that land is now restored back to you. So if you are the great, 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 great granddaughter or son of whoever and you've never even stepped foot on that land, at the year of Jubilee, the trumpet sounds and now they say, guess what? You've just inherited all of this land, which meant all of this wealth. And you didn't, deserve it and you didn't earn it but it is the year of jubilee and it is a year of partying <laughs> right it is one long year of a party feasting up the land of what it produced from the years before and what that meant is that every israelite is now going to get a fresh start why the jubilee what is the purpose of the Jubilee? The purpose of the Jubilee, the Leviticus 25 laws, was to prevent any Israelite family from being permanently disenfranchised from their family farm. It was a way to give those who are experiencing poverty a finally a leg up. Because how are you supposed to make it when debts continue to accrue and interest keeps growing? It's a way to reset our society to help the least of these. And this is why, this is like great news. It's, it's jubilee, right? This is jubilee and profound hope for the disadvantaged. But what's interesting, it is also shockingly devastating to those who are benefiting from the status quo. Because if you did make all those wise business decisions and now you have a giant mass of land, which meant a giant mass of crops, which meant a giant mass of wealth, well now, it all goes down to the original. 
Now you only have your land. Ooh. So I made the great, I made the good business decisions. And, and, and you, you squandered it all, and now it goes back to you? Does that seem fair? Ooh, in our, in our society here, this is, this is tough for us to understand. But here's what I think Yahweh wants us to see, is that Yahweh cares more about everyone having what they need rather than accumulating wealth without limit. And in our society, when we have billionaires and trillionaires and people who can't actually find food, it doesn't make sense. How beautiful would it be to have a year of Jubilee to where everyone could actually have what they need? Where everyone can live under their own fig tree, right? This is this giving their land back. It's not, it's not liberal or conservative, right? It's giving them land to then work to till. And now... Uh, an objection you might ask, and the Lord anticipates this in Leviticus 25. In Leviticus 25, 20, it says, God says, you may ask, but what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? And God says, I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. Do we see what that's actually saying? That God is saying... If you actually rely on me, there is going to be blessing in life when you experience the jubilee. When you actually trust and follow God, there is joy unspeakable. I'm going to bless you with three times as many crops. It's going to be there because our joy has teeth. Our joy has roots in reality. There's reasons to celebrate. Now, What does this have to do with Jesus? Everything. Everything. Because Jesus' first sermon that he ever preaches, you have to wonder, whatever your first sermon is, is probably a good indication of what your ministry is going to be about. And when Jesus, in Luke 4, says, hmm, which passage in the Old Testament should I look for to preach my very first sermon? I don't know, why don't we find this, this random old passage in Isaiah And in Luke 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I mean, do we see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I bring the jubilee. I am bringing the year of the Lord's favor to bring the jubilee wherever I go. And wherever Jesus went, he brought the jubilee. He was setting captives free left and right. He was setting the oppressed free. He was healing the sick. He was was eating food with outcasts. He was shocking the status quo. I mean, Jesus was showing that the gospel is tangible. It is tangible. And going back to Isaiah in chapter 61, verse 4, showing how tangible it is. Verse 4 is all about rebuilding the city. Verse 5 is is a picture of how social the gospel can be in in bringing immigrants invited in to work in a just society. Oh, it is a very tangible gospel. This jubilee that Jesus is coming to bring is a reset for shalom for everyone so that everyone can actually experience the joy and the peace here. And so what Jesus is trying to tell us is that I'm not coming to bring you an escape pod to heaven. I'm trying to bring heaven right here on earth. 
on earth as it is in heaven, that there is jubilee right here on earth. Can we experience that? Maybe slices and slivers of that, obviously more fully in the, in the, the day to come, but that's what Jesus is coming to do. And then in chapter 62, we barely can scratch the surface on, but chapter 62 is so, so, so beautiful. And it's basically Yahweh saying, I'm going to go public with our relationship. Like, we're, we're going to go Instagram worthy on this one. We are putting it out there for everyone to see, for all the nations. Verse 2, the nations will see your vindication, because God's vindicating them, and all the kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You know, there is, there is power in a name. I mean, think about that. Like, there's, there's so much power in a name. Like, if you have a, a, had, a, had a parent who called you by your name, and, and they used it with such love and tender care, and they said, I love you with your name, it, it fills you. You see your name, and you think, I do have that love. I do have that dignity. But if you had a parent who saw you and gave you a mean name, a demeaning name, and said, hey, dum-dum, even if it's something as light as that, but if you heard that over and over and over again, wouldn't you start to internalize that? And start to say, maybe I am. Maybe I am dumb. Maybe I am an idiot. Maybe I don't need to be here anymore. Your name is, has a ton of power in it. And God's saying, I'm going to give you a new name. Because of what the nations talk about you like, the nations say you are desolate. The nations say you are bereft. That you are dumb. And over time, Israel started to internalize that. And so then in verse 4, God says, no longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah, which I know we don't know what that means. It means my delight is in her. My delight is in her. And so what God is saying is that when I look at you, I'm giving you a new name, and your new name is delight. Do you believe that's how God sees you? It's going to take a while to, to block out those old names that you've been given, but you have to be able to hear God saying, my new name for you is, is Hephzibah. I love you. I love you deeply. Go back to, the, to the, the image of before that you get beauty for ashes. Let me drive that home just a little bit further. Because it's not just that you get beauty and the ashes go somewhere else. In the New Testament, Jesus says, you will get beauty and I will get ashes. Jesus is saying, I'll give you what I got if you give me what you got. And so when Jesus, when he goes to death, he gets our sin, he gets our pain, he gets our ashes. And he gives us joy, and he gives us life, and he gives us righteousness. It's what theologians call the great exchange. That we give him ashes, and he gives us beauty. This is the, this is the beauty of the wonderful thing about the, the gospel. And so if, if joy is a focus, I want you to focus and look past the ugly 
to Jesus, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now let's be clear, the cross itself was not joyful. Jesus didn't go up on the cross and said, this is joyful, I enjoy this. That's not what it is. He prayed, Father, where are you? He he did not enjoy it. He did not enjoy the nails coursing through his hands. But for the joy set before him, he looked past the pain to something greater. And that is what will bring him joy. He was looking to the guaranteed outcome. And what was Jesus' joy? What was he looking at? And what was his focus? And that is clear. It was you and me. It was you and me. His focus was on you and me. And so it wasn't, it wasn't the Roman soldiers that held him on the cross. It wasn't the nails that held him on the cross. Anytime he could have come down. Anytime he could have had a legion of angels coming down to save him. It was his love for you and me that held him on the cross. My delight. Because when I go through this, I'm going to restore our relationship. And I'm going to give you beauty and you're going to give me ashes. I'm going to give you righteousness, and you're going to give me your sin. That is what Jesus' joy is. Something far better than what we can actually see with our eyes. And if you actually see that, if you actually are able to look at that, that is going to radically transform you. That is going to, that is going to radically transform the, what you see the rest of your world to be. This is like... I don't know if you've been keeping up with college sports here. Deion Sanders, the head coach of the Colorado Buffaloes, after any of his pregame hype speeches, he ends it with, now give me my theme music. He's asking it, and then some music starts blaring. It's, it's an it's a hype. It, it is an exciting time. If Jesus were to, to finish his sermons here and to finish what he did on the cross, he's now saying, give me my theme music, and his theme music is, it's a party now because I've accomplished what I came here to do. It is liberation time because I have done it. His song is jubilee. It's freedom. It's liberation. It's liberation time. And so what does this mean for us as we go out into our week? The so what here, let me give you three ideas of what this could mean. If you focus on joy, you're going to miss it. But if you focus on Jesus and jubilee, you will get joy. Let's look past joy. Let's quit focusing on that. And look to Jesus who endured the cross for you and me, and that will fill you with joy. And you'll become so radicalized by Jesus that you'll want to bring the jubilee wherever you go. And then you'll say, like Dion, give me my theme music. And that's the second point here. Play the theme music, bring the jubilee, bring the rest wherever you go. Now, we live in an economy where you can't take a whole year off, sadly. We know you want to. I know I want to, right? But can we at least take a day? Ooh, some of us find that really hard to actually have a day of rest. Bring the Jubilee by prioritizing a day of rest. Can you also then, throughout the week, create margins to where you can have rest and space to where if someone does come and say, hey, I need this, or I want that, or I'd want to do this, you actually have the margin to do so. And that's so hard in our overscheduled overstressed worlds that we live in. And so bring the jubilee even wherever you go. 
You know, some of us, that's going to be hard. We have to, make, we, have to, we have to talk with our work about how we can do that. But let's bring the Jubilee there. And then lastly, forgive debts. We can't talk about Jubilee without talking about forgiving debts. And like it's, let's start spiritually. Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Is there someone who has sinned against you that we have to then apply this and forgive them for it? It's hard. It's a debt, right? They owe. They owe you. However, if Jesus were to forgive me, of course I can forgive our debtors. And so let's forgive. But second, let's go not just spiritual. Does someone owe you money? <laughs> ooh, ooh, don't talk about pocketbook. Does someone owe you? Do we have to, can we forgive actual debts? And then can we look about those in our, in our community and start liberating and bringing the jubilee? I mean, our, our God cares about every man, woman, and child, and every man, woman, child has the Imago Dei imprinted on them, so we all have dignity and worth. Amen, hallelujah. But there's also clear from Isaiah and from this chapter in particular that he has a special concern for the most vulnerable, and in clear and in particular, the poor. What can we do to liberate the poor in our midst is that on our minds? It's clearly it's on, on the Lord's mind. Can we, can we at least think about it? Can we look at how we can release the captives by giving our money, our time, our love for the poor in our midst, but also for those in our body? And when we do these things, when we focus on Jesus, when we focus on Jubilee, then we will get the joy that we also desperately crave. Let me pray for us.